Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest today is Christopher Forth, Dean's Professor of Humanities and Professor of History at the University of Kansas. He's the author of the book, Fat, A Cultural History of the Stuff of Life. Chris Forth, you're very welcome to the show. We're delighted to be speaking with you today, and particularly given your perspective on the issue that is on the mind of most doctors these days, and that's the whole area of obesity and fat and how we deal with it and how we feel about it. But before we do that, I thought we'd start by asking you, why did you become a historian? Yeah, that's an interesting question. By the way, Morris, thanks for having me. I, I'm really happy to be speaking in the two Australians. I actually spent 10 very happy years at the Australian National University as a history professor. So it's uh, I always like to maintain my connections with a country that I really love. Well, we're, um, I'm very sorry that yeah, that you left us, but that's a that's oh a, yeah, so there's sure another days. story. <laughs> uh, depends what what's going on with the politics. Yeah, it's it's odd. I, I became an historian because I really couldn't figure out what else to to focus on, mm-hmm. because I had frankly too many interests. I I, I was interested in, in literature. I was interested in philosophy. Mm-hmm. I became interested in social theory. I gosh, I became interested in so many different things, but none of them. It seemed to me would allow me to also be interested in the the things that they were in different fields. Uh, so if I were a literature professor, it'd be probably be hard to also maintain interest in, say, social theory. So history seemed to me to be a fairly open space to think about issues that interested me, particularly in the past. But uh, I have always tried in my in the, what I've written to maintain a, this interdisciplinary interest, which is really mostly driven me. So in, in an odd kind of way, I'm not interested in history as much as I am in the larger questions and themes that uh, that interest me personally, and which I think also uh, at times have are of uh, interest to other people. Uh, so I want to talk about your book, which is called Fat, A Cultural History of the Stuff of Life. And I want to start with a quote from the introduction to that book in which you say, Many scholars implicitly subscribe to some version of the idea that the history of so-called obesity is the story of how what was good became ugly and then bad. Mm -hmm. Talk me through that. What's the potted version of that uh, trajectory? Of that idea that I'm rejecting? Yes. That, you know, what became, uh, what was good became ugly and then bad. Yes. um, The author of that was actually... uh, not an historian, really, but a rhinologist. So, I mean, so to be fair, uh, this is not a person who is necessarily uh, as immersed in the history as others might be. But the um, this is the the title of of that person's article, and I thought that actually quite a lot of other scholars uh, have subscribed to a similar idea. Uh, quite frequently, you've encountered this notion that before the modern era, fat bodies were not only tolerated but celebrated. That there was a very little sense of limits that one could have on the body, and that, in fact, um, depending upon who you read, the implication might have been that the fatter you were, the better, because fat could symbolize abundance and fertility. In some cases, it could symbolize a kind of power, even a kind of, uh, in terms of a, a kind of imposing monumental physicality. Which could all of these things could convey convey lots of different things: wealth, status, power, and that's not 
entirely true. I'm sorry, that's not entirely false, I should say. But and so I understand why people might have come to that conclusion. But I think that it's uh, pretty overstated because the more carefully you look at the past, you start to realize that, in fact, and I'm not the first person to to observe this. If you look, if you start looking at the Greeks, you realize that in fact there was. A quite a degree of intolerance for fat even then, not least because of their own aesthetic ideals about what the, the human body, particularly the male body, mm-hmm. should look like. It became evident to me that this narrative of uh, what was once good that, that became ugly and then like, morally bad, so not only aesthetically displeasing, but also a moral problem, that this is really not entirely accurate. In fact, the reality, I think, uh, is far more ambiguous. So that, yes, there is a history of good perceptions about fat. There's, there's no doubt about that. But when you look carefully, and I think when you think more broadly about what counted as fat in earlier periods, you get a more complicated picture, which is, um, for me, is basically that, you know, it, it has always been to some degree ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So obviously a bit of good and uh, bad as well. Right, And what most, what, what this book is trying to do is not necessarily trying to track and understand the good and the bad. Um, it's actually trying to understand the formation of certain stereotypes over time. And to do that, I think you have to dispense with the idea that that what was once good became ugly and then bad was ever really adequately sums up the history of that. In the book, you actually mention Henry VIII, and I'm fascinated by that because mm-hmm. we think of Henry VIII as this powerful man who had all these women and even had some of them beheaded. And, you know, mm-hmm. he seemed like a very powerful figure. And mm-hmm. yet you describe him, uh, and, and now that I think about it, looking at his pictures, as quite grossly obese to the point mm-hmm. where he needed to be wheeled around almost in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't as potent uh, in real life as he appears in the in the books oh. and in the uh, image we have of him. What would it have been like for Henry VIII then? And would he have experienced the same feelings of power now had he been around? Had he been around today? Yes. Uh, well, um, I'm not entirely sure about that. I mean, in the case of Henry VIII, he was particularly large mm. so that I think that wouldn't necessarily be a, a problem. But in the case of, of, of our perception, or at least our memory of Henry VIII, very very often we have in our minds Holbein's portrait of Henry VIII, which is very particular. I mean, it is, I mean, the way in which he glowers at the viewer, he represents this kind of immovable force, but he also, there's a kind of defiance there, which suggests a willingness to to back up his threats with actual violence. And so, and I think these are the kinds of things that, in the case of the history of fat men, have often served to validate their fatness as a form of masculinity. Height matters a lot, I think, in the in terms of these perceptions, but I think also just the deeds, that is, a reputation for doing kind of tough things also is, is very helpful here, I think, in managing one the impressions one has of one's fatness. And so we're here around today. Actually, it's interesting, and I, I'm sorry to be kind of be very, very au courant, but I think that um, uh, Trump is a very good example of, uh, of a man who, depending upon how he's dressed, is actually, I mean, he's most likely clinically obese, uh, depending upon who, which doctor you believe. And, uh, but the way in which he, his bulk is managed, I think, has a variety of effects. I mean, he's a tall man, too. 
And I think that also contributes to this in a kind an impression of impulse imposing bulk mm. that could be seen as monumental. But also he's I mean, you know, he's not nice, uh, to put it mildly. So the various things that he's able to do certainly seem to correspond to a kind of very coarse brutal form of masculinity that I think that in people's impressions mitigates this other lingering idea that you see also in the West that fatness and masculinity are actually at odds. And that is a, that is probably one of the deeper historical points that I that you can find by looking by tra- tracking um, the history of fat deeper into the past is that Fatness is a problem for men in terms of in, insofar as it represents a kind of softness and effeminacy, but that can be managed. So, in some forms, as some sociologists have pointed out, this fatness can be reimagined as bigness, and imagined as bigness allows it, I think, to lose some of its potentially negative, even feminizing connotations. This is my impression. So, were Henry to the eighth, the eighth to be around today. Well, I think you'd have to get a hold of uh, Donald Trump's tailor to begin with, and uh, and maybe some platform shoes. <laughs> some platform shoes, because he was quite a tall man, Henry VIII, wasn't he? To be honest, I don't really know. Um, it, it, if so, good for him. <laughs> he <was> certainly contributed. <laughs> it because, worked for I mean, yeah. And one of the things I mention in the book is that all the other medieval kings who were fat, and particularly the ones who had the title you know, the moniker, the fat, like Charles Le Gros, Charles the fat, uh, Louis Le Gros, Louis, Louis the fat, were considered, to, their fatness was considered to be a liability. And it's notable that Henry VIII was never called Henry the fat, to the best of my knowledge. And I think that that suggests the extent to which he was able to, through appearance, impression management, as well as through deeds, was able to manage that. It's interesting because when you look at the stereotype of fat now, you certainly do get the impression of all the things that are negative, like laziness and stupidity and these kind of things that are associated with being fat. But increasingly, you're getting the counter kind of perceptions, as you Mm -hmm. say, you know, with some men in power being fat. But you also get it now with women, don't you? You get women who Mm -hmm. say, I'm I'm beautiful, I like the way I am, I like, mm-hmm. uh, I think I'm sensual, all the rest of it. And you now see, you know, even lines of underwear, which basically feature larger mm-hmm. women. Yeah. So yeah. do you think that there's always going to be in this kind of perception, this kind of ambiguity in our minds about where, what is and is not acceptable in terms of our, our body shape? I think it, it, it will certainly always be that case because it's always been that way. I mean, there's, I don't, I'm not aware of any culture or any period in history where one has ever really been free to be as one wishes. There's always been social and cultural demands made upon the body. In some cases, you know, forcible bodies are like with the Greeks, forcibly forced from infancy into a particular shape. Mm-hmm. So um, I see that as always being the case. But in the case of, um, the promotion of body positivity today and um, and thinking about fat in more acceptable ways. I mean, certainly, I think this ambiguity is always there. I mean, for much of Western history, to be feminine and female is to have a degree of fat. It's expected for girls and women to be kind of soft and rounded and have, deg- have to one extent or another, a degree of fleshiness. So that um, our current slender ideals are a little bit odd, actually, when it comes to the history of female bodies. 
All right, I want to now come into my sphere, which is in, in medicine. And of course, I will see the majority of people who will come and see a doctor are going to be either overweight or obese. That's just the reality. In Australia now, that's 70% of men and 50% of women, and now increasingly a larger proportion of children, I think a quarter of all children in Australia are now either overweight or obese. Yeah. So there is this whole kind of, as I say, ambivalence about how they feel about it. And what we've discovered in some research, and I think it's been replicated worldwide, is people just don't recognize it anymore. They don't mm -hmm. see themselves as either as overweight in particular, and in some mm -hmm. cases even obese, because it's yeah. normalized. Unfortunately, along with that comes the higher risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, yeah. and cancer. Yeah. So yeah. we're in, stuck in a very hard place at the moment. On the one hand, a population that's getting larger. On the other hand, society that likes slender. And where do you think it's all going to... How do you think historians will see this in years to come? Oh, well, that's a, that's a huge question. And it obviously depends on that historian's uh, perspective and... I, I think that in regard to the medical question, which I have uh, not really taken any position on in, in the book because I'm more really more concerned with the formation of stereotypes, mm. um, one of the dominant oppositions to medical arguments about obesity, in fact, in many cases, the word, even the word obesity um, among some of these, um, these, uh, these scholars is really not accepted. There's, I'm sure you're aware of the, uh, the health at any size movement, which can argue and argue, it argues basically that for an attempt to put aside the aesthetic demand, the cultural demand to be thin, to focus more on issues of actual health, where size is actually not necessarily an indicator of uh, of poor health, because there are there apparently are cases of uh, of people who are who appear to be, you know, uh, fat who are actually in actually better health. Uh, in many cases, but I myself am not really up on the scholarship there, so it's very hard to me to it's hard for me to make any kind of pronouncement about that. Unfortunately, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. No, I accept that. But thinking about it purely in terms of the stereotypes, mm. we, we're having to, as professionals, certainly confront our stereotypes because you clearly mm. have to be tread very carefully, as you say. Mm. Because even the British Psychological Society has said that mm. we need to stop talking about obesity. And talk mm -hmm. about people living with obesity, almost as if it's a as a condition, a, a uh, interesting uh, and an, an illness. But when you are saying seeing this a sixteen year old who is on that trajectory, and you can see that their blood pressure is beginning to go up, and they're yeah. they've got early signs of diabetes, it is very hard not to put your foot in it and say, "Mate, you need to lose weight." Yeah, what will future historians have to say? Uh, I honestly, I, I just don't know. I mean, because they would have to locate these phenomena in the context of a of a society that is itself uh, quite contradictory and paradoxical. I mean, the society that we uh, that we live in not only promotes slender bodies and and healthy fitness, but also promotes consumption. Yeah. And it basically pulls people in all these different different directions, which makes it, of course, it, it has been like this for a long time, but it is evidently getting worse. And I think this is playing havoc in the ways in which people try to manage their lives, um, not least because in many cases, diets don't seem to work, or if they do work, they don't stick. And in other cases, there, seem to, there seems to be a problem on, on, the, on the part of healthcare professionals in terms of 
leaping to the assumption that a large body size is necessarily the cause of this or that illness or you know whatever condition is there. Mm-hmm. So it it seems to be a very complicated situation. And so while I hear you entirely, I it's hard for me to you know make sense of what it would be in the future. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really have a position on that. You make a very interesting statement towards the end of your book, and I want to read from the last paragraph. You say, to ask what remains of the past is not only to inquire into how the past shapes our present, it also means asking which parts of history we refuse to forget, in italics, which ideas and ideals we resurrect and invoke as a means of transforming or lamenting our present. Do you want to comment on that statement? Yeah. One of the things that, I mean, among historians, it's fairly commonplace to argue that what is occurring in particular periods is extremely unique to that period. And we tend to be a little bit distrustful for good reasons for making large claims about continuities over long periods of time. But if I look at the kinds of ideas and ideals that have been repeatedly invoked in the West, I tend to see a a deliberate attempt to recapture what people imagine to be the way things were in you know, previous, you know, thousands of years ago, for example, in the case of the ancient Greeks, uh, or in the case of Sparta, that we can tap into this almost, it's kind of like a, almost a utopian dreaming, in a sense. And so, for me, there has been a tendency in Western culture to deliberately revisit these idealized pasts as a way of directing ourselves or orienting ourselves in the present towards some kind of future. And I, I don't know that these that this backward looking works, and that's why I, I'm basically I'm using the uh, Nietzsche's ideas there, the philosopher Nietzsche, in yeah. terms of what he calls active forgetting, because maybe there are ways of moving forward that did not depend upon this a kind of a recuperation of images of the past, and that's why I, I end the book saying that maybe it's the weight of history that is the most problematic of all, especially here when it comes to stereotyping, since many of our stereotypes today really do seem to have, at least in their cognitive core, ancient elements. And that's pretty much what I mean. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that you hark back to that, because if you look at uh, television today, you look at programs like Biggest Loser or Gladiator, Mm. we really are talking about Almost, and even the, even the word gladiator, harking back yes. to, you yeah. know, the Roman times when gladiators would have been seen as muscular, uh, and there, and I think a, a thesis that you've developed in your book is that our fat is fat's what we're made of. I mean, that's essentially it, and and as so are all the other animals. And mm-hmm. by yeah. getting rid of this, we mm-hmm. are becoming less like animals, and we're we're achieving this, you know, longevity. Uh, of course, yeah. they now say that. Thin is the the new rich. Um, yeah, that if if you you know if you drive around some suburbs of uh, Los Angeles, you will find mm-hmm. you won't find a fat person. They're all they're all very no. svelte. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, absolutely. And I think that what at the heart of the heart of really what I'm trying to articulate in this book, which is the, it's actually quite a lot of stuff going on at one time, is this uh, central idea that having a body, which is pretty much the the lot of all of us. Mm. Um, is actually a mixed blessing because, on the one hand, it allows us to to do things, to enjoy life, to experience experience pleasures, 
but at the same time, I, it also these are things that that uh, the body lets us down in so many ways. And so I think that to some extent, the uh, our our ambivalence in regard to fat, but also fatness and and things I talk about in, in relation to fattening. These are things that are reminders of the fact that our bodies are our animal bodies as well, mm-hmm. which has historically not been a very tolerable idea for many people, if only because, you know, the animals die and as do as do we. And so in so many ways, I think my, my opinion is that a lot of our attempts to uh, to transcend fatness are almost uh, spiritual in their aspirations. Um, because they're, they they're a bit unrealistic, I would yeah. say. Yeah. And I think that this this fantasy of overcoming embodiment, in the, which is in other words uh, a fantasy of overcoming organic life, uh, is very central to the the very the, the long history of misgivings we have about fatness. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. And certainly medicine plays into that narrative because we now see that, oh, if you're fat, you're more likely to die early. You're more likely to develop these horrible diseases where bits of you will fall off, et cetera, et cetera. So you're right. You know, it is very much playing back into that narrative. And of course, what you want to achieve is longevity. You know, a life of 120 years is now possible. Uh, if you look at Greg Norman, for example, he's he's remaining extremely fit uh, into his 60s and 70s. And what, yeah. it, what, it, what he said, I want to live to 120. I've got rid of all the fat. Yeah, interesting that that's that that's what he thinks it takes, and, and good on him too. You know, I mean, I think that's uh, that's. Uh, I mean, I, and also, don't we all want that? You know, really. I love the the last. Um, the last chapter in the conclusions, and I want to read you the first couple of three lines of it because I, I, I almost laughed out loud when I read it. It says, you say, 2,000 years since the death of Jesus, Christians still disagree about what their bodies might look like in heaven. One churchgoer in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, is confident she's going to heaven. What scares her is the possibility that she'll show up uh, 30 pounds overweight and stay that way forever. <laughs> I, ha- I have to make an admission here because um, this has been revealed. I-, I actually made a mistake with that uh, that passage because it's actually a satire, and uh, <laughs> I didn't recognize it. But but the, 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 in my defense, <laughs> the, it reads is so credible yeah. because this history among Christians of asking the question that if bodies will be raised at the end of time. What will my body look like? Yes. And Christians have, of various sorts, have asked variations of this question since the time of St. Augustine. So this is probably why I got suckered into this. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think that it, um, even satirically presented, it does illustrate something. Um, that is this idea that whether or not you know one is looking for uh, a kind of heaven on earth or thinking about a, a hereafter where one will still have a body, the key question is, is that, you know, what kind of body am I trying to have? Mm-hmm. And I think it, the, the body that we would love to have is a body that's not really a body, that it's a body that doesn't really do the things that bodies do, or the body, we want bodies on our own terms, I think, <laughs> which I think is here where a Christian, you know, idea about the resurrection and a very secular approach to bodies here and now actually have a lot in common, I think, because in some weird ways, we all kind of want the same thing. That's exactly right. And I think that's a great note on which to end this conversation, because it's very much what what we hear as doctors in clinics. People want 
they, they don't want the body they've got. They want the body they think they'd like to have, uh, which yes. is immortal uh, and pain-free, uh, symptom-free yeah. in, every, in every way you can imagine, and which makes them feel great. Yeah. Is that we'll too have, much we'll to ask? ask? Well, we'll have to, ask, have to ask Greg Norman, won't we? You know? <laughs> He'll have to let us know how it goes. Chris Port, it's been a joy speaking with you. As I said to you at the start of the conversation, it's going to be like eating chocolate. It's been very much like that. I feel about 20 pounds heavier. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Marius, for having me. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Wonderful. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>